invite you to be seated. <clears throat> so the bulletin's a complete mess today, and that's uh, my doing. I had one plan that I'd laid out oh, about a month ago and that was going to take us through the end of July. And then this week, it seemed like a good idea to change it, so I very quickly had it changed to something else and printed. And then when I got to the end of that, I found out that uh, I couldn't do what I'd planned there. And so uh, today you get a, what I call a microwave sermon, hot and tasty. I just took it out of the freezer. So. Uh, our text this morning, uh, rather than being Hebrews 10, is, uh, is actually from Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14. And this is just a, a wonderful, rich passage in the midst of a wonderful, rich book. If you, the book of Hebrews is, um, is not simple to understand. Very often you need some guidance. But the book of Hebrews is where we go when we want to connect the Old Testament and the people of God amongst the Jewish nation to the New Testament and the people of God today and see it as one great long progress of God gathering for Himself a people to the glory of His name. And so from Hebrews chapter 4, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, our great high priest, we need you now. We need your power to forgive. We need your power to heal body and mind and spirit. We need your power just to walk forward through our days. Help us, O oh Lord, and speak to us in this hour of eternal things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, just to, by way of, of background a little bit, this book of Hebrews was written, we don't know who the author was, in the King James Version it assigns authorship to Paul, but that is uh, kind of a, a more recent thing, and scholars are really not sure who wrote that book. It could have been Paul, it could have been Apollos as well, because it makes a lot of use of allegory and things like that, that uh, Apollos was apparently skilled in, but we just don't know. But it was written to a group of Jewish Christians, and it was written in a time when they were being terribly persecuted in Jerusalem and in Judea, and they were considering just dropping the whole Jesus thing altogether and going back to Judaism because it just seemed like being a disciple of Jesus caused so much trouble. And so this writer is writing to a group of people who are suffering. They're suffering imprisonment. And their children are left in the care of others if they're left in the care of anybody. They're suffering the, the confiscation rather of their worldly goods. And they rejoice to suffer for Jesus. But that's hard. And so it's written to a group of Christians to encourage them and to warn them, but mostly to encourage them, to stay the course. And that's a word for us, too. You know, when we try and teach our children to empathize with others, we will often tell them to put themselves in the other person's shoes. And what we mean by that is we're asking them to take into account the experiences of others when we assess their character and their actions. And I think it's very helpful advice, not only for our children, but also for all of us. And I think that every manager, for instance, or, or white-collar worker should know what it's like to be a laborer in the company that they serve for at least a little while. I, I can remember, you know, there are times where I was a mechanic and, and you, you're uh, elbow deep in Toyota or something like that, and you see something that some engineer thought was a brilliant way to solve a problem that makes all kinds of trouble for you as a mechanic, and you rend your garments and you cry out to the heavens and you say, oh Lord, that that stupid son of a gun would come here and try and get that bolt out himself, right? And that never happens. And I always said, you, every, every engineer in an automotive company should go work as a mechanic for a year. That'd clean up a lot of problems right there. You'd pay a lot less for your service on your car because it wouldn't be nearly so hard to do. And, and I think uh, every new hire should spend six months as an apprentice on the shop floor and know what it's like to run a mill or a lathe or to do assembly line work. One of the things that God has blessed me with as a pastor is a blue collar background. I've been a mechanic. I've been a welder in a shipyard, I've been a truck driver, I've been a concrete worker, I've roofed houses, I've installed siding and windows. I am a jack of all trades and a master of none. And I know what it's like to sweat, and I know what it's like to be cold and wet. I know what it's like to peel aluminum forms off of concrete walls after you've poured them and they're dry, and to have all that green concrete burn your skin because it's, uh, it's very alkaline. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to get laid off. I know what it's like to get seriously injured on the job. I had second and third degree burns over the whole right side of my face and head at one point in time from opening a hot radiator that was hotter than I knew it was. Uh, I know what it's like to have to go through workman's comp. 
and have them diddle you around and try and do everything they can to deny you what's due you. I know what it's like to be told, uh, this was my favorite one, I worked in an air filter factory that made very high-end air filters for like nuclear submarines and oil rigs and stuff like that, and I was in the maintenance department, and they were having some layoffs, and they laid off a bunch of people, and they didn't lay off me, and my boss said, yeah, we thought about it, but you're cheap labor. And what that means is we're paying you less than you're worth. So it's to our advantage not to lay you off, which didn't make me feel encouraged or loyal. And, and I think that that experience makes me a better pastor. And it helps me to relate to people who work with their hands for a living. And that's a big part of the reason that this church is working very hard not to be simply a program-driven church. Uh, I can remember when I was between churches for an extended period of time, it was back in 2001, 2002 uh, era, and, uh, and I worked as a, as a mechanic in a BMW repair shop in Cincinnati, and I was just reminded of what it's like to come home exhausted after eight or nine hours of hard work and how unwelcome it is to have some pastor who thinks that he's got to justify his existence by coming up with things for me to do to come up with things for me to do when I was tired. And, uh, and so I, I identify with that. I've walked in the other person's shoes, and, and it's an integral part of why Jesus also was able to be our mediator with God, that he has walked, so to speak, in our shoes. The great miracle of the incarnation is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God became a real man, not an apparent man, not an invulnerable superhero, not a man who never cried or who was never stabbed in the back by a friend or who never worked for a living or whose actions were never ever disapproved of by family and friends or anybody else, but a real man a poor man, a laboring man. Jesus was a guy who hit his thumb with a hammer from time to time, and when he hit his thumb, it hurt, just like it does you. He surely cut himself on his tools, just like every other laborer. I always say in every car job, there's a bloody sacrifice to be paid, and it usually comes just as, about your, just as you're breaking free that most difficult bolt. And when Jesus was cut, he bled, just like you do. When his friends turned their back on him, it hurt him. When his mother tried to control him inappropriately, indications are that he resented it. We see that in Mark 3.21 when his mother and brothers decide, well, he's gone around the bend and uh, we need to go get him and put him in a rubber room. And, and there's great cloud, crowds listening to him and they come and say, we, we need to come get him. He's lost his mind and Jesus won't even go out to see him. Jesus says, well, my mother and my brothers are the people that are here listening to the Word of God, there's a sting of rejection and rebuke in that. And even at the wedding at Cana, his first miracle, that only came about because his mom nagged him, right? And when he worked, he worked hard. And when he was done, he was tired. His childhood friends and neighbors turned on him when he preached the gospel to them. That's Mark 6 and verses 1 through 6. He suffered persecution at the hands of his enemies he was basically homeless for the last three years of his life, and he lived off of the support of some rich women. He moved from house to house, never sleeping in his own bed. And when he was arrested, he was beaten, which was against the law. 
He was subject to a trial that was against the law. They were never supposed to hold a trial at night. He was executed by a man who actually proclaimed him to be innocent. And before he was executed, he was subject to a whipping that often killed strong men. And you were never supposed to whip somebody like that and then crucify them. But that's exactly what happened because Pilate thought he could get him off with just a whipping. And he couldn't. And in that whipping, his skin would have been flayed off of his back and raw muscle would have been exposed. And then a heavy wooden beam was laid on that wound, on those raw wounds, and he was forced to carry that cross. And then he was fixed by nails, probably naked to that cross, and he was mocked. And in death, he suffered the complete abandonment of his father and felt the full fury of God's wrath poured out upon him for the punishment of the sins of his elect. And so his death was one of the most painful deaths, maybe the most painful death ever suffered. That's our Lord. Dorothy Sayers, the Christian playwright who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, she had something wonderful to say about this. I've said it before, so... uh, put up with it if you remember he said the church's answer is she said rather the church's answer is categorical and uncompromising and it is this that Jesus bar Joseph the carpenter of Nazareth was in fact and in truth and in the most exact and literal sense of the words the God by whom all things were made his body and brain were those of a common man his personality was the personality of God so far as that personality could be expressed in human terms. He was not a kind of demon or fairy pretending to be human. This is the official creed of Christendom. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be, quote, like God. He was God. Now, this is not just pious commonplace. It is actually not commonplace at all, for what it means is this, among other things, that for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the most trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and he died in disgrace and he thought it well worth while. You see, Christ suffered. And Hebrews 5.8 is very interesting, I think so, because Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he suffered. You see, it was the, the Father's goodwill to afflict him with suffering. That's what Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. How foreign that is to our ears who go out of our way to relieve our own children of suffering in any way that we possibly can, even the suffering that's necessary for them to build character, even the suffering that is necessary as feedback 
for their bad actions. You know, I have something that I say to my kids, I'm not sure I'll be, uh, I, I will be cherished for that memory, but every time they do something stupid and it hurts, I look at them and said, do you learn anything? And sometimes the answer is no. And so I'm like, well, go on and do it again then. Just hit yourself in the head with that hammer again. Go ahead. Eventually you'll learn, right? When, when I was a kid, one of the schools that I went to still had spanking. And my aunt was a teacher at that school, so I couldn't hide anything from anybody. And uh, I, I got spanked at school one day for a, a misdeed, and then I went home, and my grandfather uh, was caring for me at that time, and, and he said, what happened at school today? And I said, oh, nothing. And he said, that's not true. And uh, so then I went home, and I got punished at home for being so bad that I needed to be spanked at school. Now, if a teacher dares to discipline a child or a coach offers criticism, they burst into tears, they run home to mommy and daddy, and the next day the principal and the teacher hear from mommy and daddy about how they shouldn't have done that, and that is foolishness. It makes the teacher's job harder, and it also makes the schools less disciplined ultimately. So if you're one of those who does that sort of thing, cut it out. Let them bear the responsibility and the consequences for their actions. Christ suffered though he was a son. And Christ suffered on purpose and for a purpose. It was no accident. It was no mere chance that he suffered. It's not that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. God did it to him on purpose. And what was God's purpose in Christ's suffering? Well, it wasn't to punish him for his sin, was it? Because he had no sin. There are many other reasons that the author could have highlighted as to why Christ suffered, and they would have been legitimate. For instance, it would have been legitimate to point out that Christ suffered for our sins instead of his sins. But the writer doesn't say that. The writer says that Christ suffered to learn obedience. And what is obedience? Well, obedience is the subjection to the will of another. It's an owning of the authority of another. It is performing the pleasure or the command of another. It is to say to another, I will do whatever you tell me to do. And Christ denied himself, and Christ renounced his own will, and in the words of Romans 15, 3, he did not please himself. Christ suffered because he was found in the appearance and actual nature of a sinful man. He was without sin, but he looked just like us. Christ suffered because he put himself in the position of a creature. And the proper place and the right relationship of the creature to the creator is one of absolute, complete submission. That's the creature's proper role. And that's the creature's proper glory when it's properly understood. And that's what the creature was created for. And this is true for the unfallen creature. And it's all the more true for the fallen creature. And Christ put himself in this position. There was no insubordination in his mind or in his heart. There was nothing disinclined to God's law as there is in us. He still had a will because that's what it means to be a creature. You have a will. Even unfallen creatures have a will, and he still had to experience what it might be like for a creature to, be sub, to, to subject that will to God and to trust God alone. Think about the ministry of Christ in this light. 
It begins with a baptism that he did not need, strictly speaking. He submits to that baptism, he says, in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he's standing in our place, even at the beginning in some way. And he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, where he's told to fast for 40 days. Now, I don't know if you've ever fasted for an extended period of time. It's not easy. His creaturely will would have naturally not preferred to do that. It would have preferred a roof over his head and a warm place to sleep and food for his belly and human companionship. But he didn't get any of that. For 40 days, he had none of that. And at the point of maximum discomfort to his creaturely nature, undertaken solely at the command of God, the devil appears to him and the devil tempts him. During the next three years, we see a life of the constant frustration of his natural creaturely desires simply because that was what God wanted him to do. He endures ridicule where his creaturely nature would desire the goodwill of another person instead of their ill will. He stays awake when his creaturely nature would prefer to sleep. He moves from place to place constantly where his creaturely desires would be for a settled place, for a home and a hearth. He opens himself up to no other human being. It says in John 6, he, he kept his, his own counsel because he knew what was in the hearts of men and he knew that they couldn't be trusted. So he opens himself up to no other human being where his creaturely desire would be for intimacy and for friendship. He denies himself marriage and children where his natural desire as a man would be for a wife and perhaps offspring and perhaps even grandchildren one day. When he's arrested, he doesn't defend himself as a creature has a right to do, though 50 legions of angels were at his beck and call and it would have been fine for him to use them under other circumstances, but he subjected his will to God. At the end of his life, we find him in a garden begging God to let the cup of this horrid death pass from him, and he cries out in agony, and he sweats drops of blood. He even asked for the prayers of his friends during this moment who were snoozing 50 yards away, and he didn't get them. And what does he say at the end? Nevertheless, Father, not what I will, but what you will. His whole life was one of submission to God in all circumstances, in the midst of the attacks and privations and stupidity of all the sinful people all around him. His whole life was a constant humbling, a constant thwarting of his normal, non-sinful, creaturely desires, not of his own accord, but at the express leading of God. And he did it so that he could completely identify with you and me and save us. What can we conclude from this? What lessons can we draw? Lesson number one. Our Redeemer has left us an example that we are to follow. He's left us an example that we are to follow. He has shown us how to wear our creaturely natures. He's shown us a complete and unhesitating subjection to God as that which is required of us. And he's shown us that that is good. That's a good thing. 
and our complete trust in God's providential will in the midst of those terrible circumstances that God sometimes leads us through is a large part of this process of metamorphosis that Mike talked about with the children. Now, of course, this means abstinence from sin, first and foremost, but it means far more than that. Maybe you're sick. If you're sick, seek a cure. If no cure is forthcoming, then don't mope. Don't rail against God. Don't thrash about in your spirit. Submit to God and submit to the illness as something that comes from God's hand and seek instead his provision in the midst of your privation. Because that's where he meets you. A wonderful song by Rich Mullins. He says, you meet the Lord in the furnace a long time before you meet him in the sky. And that's true. If you're unmarried and you desire to be married, but there's no one on the horizon who fits the bill biblically, don't complain. Don't think of yourself somehow as broken or incomplete. Submit to it as from God's hand. And find in him the great lover of your soul who satisfies your deepest longings. You know, over and over again, I, I meet people who get to a certain age and they haven't gotten married and, and, uh, and they kind of get an air of desperation about them and they, they start fixating. So I've got to find a wife. I've got to find a husband. My life is ticking away. I'm not happy. I'm not complete. And, uh, and, and my advice is always the same. And so far in 30 years of pastoral ministry has been universally rejected. You're not ready for a spouse until all you want is God. Because the minute you seek that spouse you'll, as the highest good in your life, you will be committing idolatry and whoever you find will end up breaking your heart in one way or another because they simply cannot occupy the place that you're trying to get them to occupy. Because that place can only be occupied by God. Submit to his will. If you're in a difficult marriage... Don't rail against your mate who causes you so much pain. Submit to God in that. Do your best to treat your spouse biblically. Pray for your spouse. Love your spouse. And let God do in him or her what God sees fit to do. If you are poor and you cannot find a legitimate means of bettering your position in the world that doesn't cost you your soul, Submit to your poverty as from God's hand and find in him his faithfulness to meet your needs at every turn. And the applications of this truth go on and on and on. This properly understood is a fountain of humility and peace and joy. Lesson number two. This unhesitating subjection of our wills to God's will is our duty even unto death. In other words, there is no limit to what God may demand from you, even up to and including your death. And you have no cause to be angry or resentful towards God for anything that he chooses to bring you through. Being angry and being resentful of God's providences in your life is a result of saying in your heart, God, you had no right to do this to me. He is God. 
He is your creator. He sent his son to be obedient unto death, even death on a cross, in order to show you his great goodwill that he has for you. He has every right to do with you what he pleases. And ours is to say to him what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 36, Lord, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, one of the things that the Lord has just revealed to me about my own heart and my own life in these last few weeks is the amount of resentment that I carry around. And I've begun to see how Satan has made devilish use of that in my life. And the clear command of God, once he showed me this, is renounce resentment. Renounce resentment. And that's not something you can, I can, maybe you can, I can't do once. I mean, you make, the, you make that initial thing. I, as a pattern of life now, with the help of God, I'm going to renounce resentment. And pretty soon, you know, an hour later, you're in a situation that traditionally you resented. And that voice comes up inside of you. You're a victim. You shouldn't have to do that. I can't believe they did that to you. And you're going, yes, I'm a victim. Yes, nobody should do this to me. And then the voice of God comes. Renounce resentment. And I go, okay, I renounce it. God help me to renounce it. And all of a sudden inside I relax. And I find that it's possible to do good where I was on the way to doing evil. This obedience is costly. This obedience requires death to self. It requires the death of a self which is swollen with sinful pride. And it requires a ruthless mortification with God's help, not only of our illegitimate and sinful desires, but also to many of our legitimate and non-sinful desires, just that we have as creatures. For instance, desires for health, or company, or intimacy, or sex, or food, or nice things, or sleep, or peace and quiet, or just a car that works most of the time, right? If God has the right to demand your life from you at any time and you have the duty to lay it down cheerfully, how much more does he have the right to command you to sit and listen to a lonely, whiny old woman for an hour and have sympathy and compassion for her while you do it? If he has the right to demand your life, why not your health or your time or your money? or the goodwill of your friends and family who just do not understand you and why you do what you do, or your sexuality, or your house, or your food, or sleep. Think of Jesus in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, and the devil comes to him and says, aren't you hungry? Just turn these stones into bread. And you have something to eat. There's nothing wrong with bread, is there? Nothing sinful about bread or eating in general? Of course not. Why not do it, Jesus? And Jesus said, because God said for me not to eat right now. And he has the right to tell me not to eat. And I have the duty to submit to him. Therefore, to eat bread for me right now would be sin. Therefore, I cheerfully submit to him. That's the path out. Lesson number three, sufferings undergone according to the will of God are highly, highly instructive. 
so much so that Christ even made use of them. Now, in our world today, people pay a lot of money for an education. And right here is an invaluable education. If it comes freely, he learned. What did he learn? Obedience. Wait, he's God, the Son of God. Yeah, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And so will you. Lesson number four. The love of God does not exempt us from suffering. It's easy to think that it ought to, especially when you're in the midst of it. When something comes upon you and it's not fair and it hurts and it keeps hurting and it keeps coming upon you and it won't quit and the damage is substantial and you find your heart not just resistant and angry but just completely confused and you're like, God, what in the world are you doing here? And he doesn't tell you. He doesn't tell you. And you think to yourself, God, I can only reach one of three conclusions here. Either you are not there like I thought you were. Therefore, the temptation is atheism. Therefore, you don't love me like I thought you did. And the temptation is to hate him back. Or therefore, you are not powerful like I thought you were. And the temptation is to take your life out of his hands and put it back into your own. And the devil laughs because it's then that he can really make a proper mess of things for you. I've been there. Which of those three are you tempted to? It's good to know beforehand. It's good to know. I'll tell you where I went. God, you're not good like I thought you were. I mean, your goodness, you can say you're good. I can't argue with you because you're bigger than me. And if you are good, it must be good like chemotherapy, like it's doing me good because I'm sick, but nobody signs up for chemotherapy on a Saturday night because it's fun. God, I don't think you're good. As a matter of fact, you can't make me think you're good. I remember being in that state of mind and hearing a, an audio book where the person said, it's like, it's like we think that when we hear this, a certain person talk, it's like, it's like it seems like God is better than I ever thought he could be. And I remember listening to that. I was driving in the car in the middle of South Dakota down I-90, and I said, I do not believe that. I do not believe that God is better than I ever thought he could be. I don't believe it. But the person who was saying it was somebody I respected enormously and whose life was a wonderful testimony. And I said, well, if this person believed it, it is at least worthy of reconsideration. And it took months of wrestling. And then one day God showed up, and he showed me his goodness. You want to know my least favorite Bible verse during that time? It was in Job at the end, where God shows up in a whirlwind. And he says, all right, Job, now's your chance to do what you wanted to do. Question me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I made all these things? Where were you? And Job, you know what the answer that Job gives him? Okay, you're bigger than me. I got to shut up. That's the answer. You're bigger than me, and I got to shut up. I said, that is the least emotionally satisfying Bible verse in my life right now. You're bigger than me, and I got to shut up. It's true. I didn't like it. But somehow God showed me his goodness. To this day, I can't explain how. Sitting in an apartment in Omaha, Nebraska by myself, God showed me his goodness. 
The love of God does not exempt us from suffering, and Jesus Christ is the proof of that because He was the only begotten Son, beloved by the Father, and Jesus suffered. So why do we think we don't have to? And when we do suffer, why do we think that we've been forsaken by God? Well, that comes from sinful hearts and closed Bibles. There is much more that I could say, and I wish I had the time to do so, but I do not. So let me close with this. We, in the providence of God, in our Sunday school class on the Puritans, today we discussed John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who suffered greatly. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel in England in the mid-1600s uh, during a time when only a certified Anglican priest could preach the gospel or anything in a church. And Bunyan found himself unable by conscience as a, a Baptist to submit to that church and that government and that system. And so he not only refused to attend church, which was illegal, he also dared to preach to others who were in the same boat. And the government found this very, very threatening during that time. The king was a little bit insecure. And so they put him in prison, in Bedford Jail. And he was there for 12 years. And he could have gotten out at any time. All he had to do was to be to go before a judge and say, I will not preach anymore. And he said, God's called me to do it. And I can't say that. I won't say that. Well, then you'll stay in jail. I mean, the, the jailers from time to time let him out because they knew he'd come back, right? But that didn't happen very often. But, but he, would, he, he had a daughter, too, who was blind. He, only had, one, he had four children and only one lived to adulthood. And, and his daughter was blind. And, so, and she died early, too, while he was in prison. But his wife and his blind daughter would come and they would stand outside of the window of Bedford Jail and he could look upon them from a distance and talk to them. And it was a wonderful comfort and a terrible, terrible pain at the same time. Listen to what he said. He said, this is like tearing the flesh from my bones. That's how John Bunyan described parting with his family after their brief visits with him in prison. Each time they walked away, John was reminded of the great difficulty of his incarceration imposed on them, especially on his blind daughter, Mary. What sorrow you are likely to have is your portion in this world, he wrote. You must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand other calamities, even though I cannot so much as bear to have the wind blowing upon you. Adding to John's misery was the knowledge that just by saying the word, he could be released. Just one simple statement, I will not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, was all that it would take to set him free to support his family again. But John couldn't do it. I have determined, he said, that Almighty God, being my help and shield, yet to suffer. If frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow, till shall grow on mine eyebrows, rather than violate my faith. And so John waited on God for 12 years in the overcrowded, unsanitary, poorly heated Bedford jail. And there's something he learned there. John said, nothing can render affliction so insupportable as the load of sin 
Would you therefore be fitted for afflictions? Be sure to get the burden of your sins laid aside, and then what affections soever you may meet with will be very easy for you. John learned many spiritual lessons in prison and came to a clear understanding that he needed to entrust his family to God. He meditated on Jeremiah 49, 11, leave your fatherless children, I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. Later he wrote, I also considered that if I entrusted all to God, I engaged God to take care of my concerns. But if I forsook his ways, then I would not only falsify my profession, but would also consider that my concerns, if left as God's, at God's feet while I, stood true, while I stood true to and for his name, were not as secure as they would be if they were under my care, even though I was denying the way of God. Later he said, if thou canst hear and bear the rod of affliction which God shall lay upon thee, remember this lesson. Thou art beaten, that thou mayest be better. You know, one of my favorite books is a, by an author named Stephen Lawhead. It's historical fiction, and he specializes in that. And it's about a little monk who was on his way from Ireland to Constantinople with a gift for the emperor, this great golden-paged book, illuminated manuscript of the Bible that they were bringing to him. And on the way to Constantinople, they meet with Vikings, and everybody's killed but him, and the book is taken as a trophy, and this little monk is made a slave. He's taken back to Norway, and his whole life after that is one of suffering, and in the midst of all of that, he ends up teaching the Vikings about Christ, and then ends up losing his faith in Christ. He finally makes it back to Ireland and he's renounced the church and he's renounced his monastery and he's done. And then one day the Viking ships show up in the harbor and the one who had taken him as a slave comes to meet him and says, come back with us and teach us about Jesus and build churches among us. And he says to this Viking, why in the world are you asking me to do this? And the Viking says, do you remember when we were both slaves ourselves in a mine in the Middle East undergoing great suffering and I thought I would die? And I thought about what it would mean to die. And then I thought about the Christ that you talk about. And I thought about dying in him because our gods don't care about us. I thought about dying in Christ and I wanted to know if he would welcome me. And then he says, sitting in his hall, he will see me sail into the bay, and he will run down to meet me on the shore, and he will wade into the sea and pull my boat onto the sand and welcome me as his wayfaring brother. And why would he do this? Because he too has suffered. And he knows Aiden. He knows. Beaming, Gunner concluded, is this not good news? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. 
for you are my rock and my redeemer.